Did you look any of them in the eye? I looked every one of them in the eye. Greetings and salutations, everyone. This is Thad Forrester with Patriot to the Core Podcast. Thank you for joining me again. I'm glad to be back. It's been a little while since I've released an episode. And today I've got a Medal of Honor recipient, Mr. Sammy Davis from the Vietnam era. And before I go any further, I want to apologize to our friend Mike Dillman in Manteca, California. Mike, I called you Mike Davis in this interview. So just not enough sleep, I think, on my side here and kind of lost it for a minute. But anyway, uh, Mr. Davis was just a complete pleasure to talk with. He's also known as the real Forrest Gump. So I'll have some links in the show notes about, for what that's all about. And um, there was so much we could have covered. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. I want you to please read his Medal of Honor citation and check out some of the other links that I've got there in the show notes with some interviews and, and articles on him. So just a stand-up guy and um, went through some, just some ridiculous persecution when he came back to our country, as you can imagine, back in the, in the 60s and 70s. So let's get in and enjoy our time with Mr. Davis. We also had a special guest on here, and that was his wife. Miss Dixie. So she joined us and she has a little bit of laryngitis, but that was a good little surprise to hear from her as well. All right, Mr. Davis, you wrote a book, You Don't Lose Till You Quit Trying. Yes, sir. Why, why did you decide to do the book? Well, I wanted something for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to be able to know that Grandpa was more than just the guy that went and sat on the bucket on the creek bank and fished with him. So I thought, well, I'll I'll write my book, and that way they'll know the other side of the story of Grandpa. Yeah, and, and I'm trying to think now. When you were um, in F in uh, sorry in Vietnam, you were not married yet. Oh no, sir. Okay, and no kids. I, I was just out of high school. I just discovered that girls smelled better than boys. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I, I like the book. I love the book. And one thing about it, too, is it's like a biography. So it's not all about your military career. I, I love hearing about your life growing up. And one thing about you is you moved a, a lot. Yes, sir. I, I mean, looking back on that, what did you? What do you think about that? Was that? I'm sure it was good for you, but did you would did you want that for your children as well, or would you have wanted some prefer stability? Well, I preferred stability. I mean, I didn't mind it as a as a young man. I just thought that's the way it was. Well, it was the way it was. My sister still <laughs> talked badly about, we always moved. We never got to stay with our friends. But the unique side of it is, is that no matter where I go in America, I've got old schoolmates. I've got old friends, schoolmates. That's true. So I, so I love it. Well, and you and I have a mutual friend in Mike Dillman out in Manteca, California. So that's Oh, yeah. Cool. In fact, I uh, I called Mike and said, "Hey, uh, do you know Sammy Davis? <laughs> you know, he, he lived in in Mantic at one time." He said, "Of course I do. He comes to dinner when he's in town." <laughs> y- yes, sir. <clears throat> so, what has been the reaction of the book, and how has that how has that helped you as you go to speak at different events? Well, it's definitely given people a lot more questions simply because they know more about me. So. When we go talk at one of the events, they'll bring it up. Well, I read in the book that, you know, and then we'll tell me about it. So I'll tell them about, I'll tell them, give them more depth about what 
the subject they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And it, it's working very well. Yes, sir. What about the background on the title? Will you explain where that came from? You don't lose till you quit trying. That was from my mama, my mother. Uh, she was constantly reminding me as a very young child that, now, Sammy Lee, you know you don't lose till you quit trying. And the unique thing of the, the night in Vietnam that I earned my medal, swim across the river for my brothers, my mama was on my shoulder. And that's what she said. Sammy Lee, you know you don't lose till you quit trying. And another thing that her spirit told me that night was that was one of the reasons why I swam across the river was because, Sammy Lee, now you don't leave your brother. So <laughs> I went and got my brothers. Yeah. Well, you know, that's one thing I was wanting to ask you is what was going through your head, you know, at that, that moment. You know, well, when all hell broke loose and you were pulling, getting your teammates out of there. And I'd forgotten that that's what was that part. At least part of it was your mom. Yes, sir. Wow. Yes, sir. I well, had in the... I had been semi unconscious because of the round that had hit eight inches from my head. The the RPG round that had hit eight inches from my head. So I was still kind of in a dazed <laughs> condition. And when I seen all these things happening. It, it was like it was unreal, and that was one of the things that helped make being my mother being on my shoulder seem so real was because I was kind of still foggy in my head, oh, <laughs> if wow. that makes any sense at all. Yeah, you talk about in the book how close you were with your mother, and, and while you were in country in Vietnam, you were you would write home to her. It seemed like quite a bit. I mean, you really you were really close to her. Yes, sir. Well, I, I tried on, I tried to write home every day. I mean, there was a time period when I didn't get to because of what had been happening, but I tried to write home to her every day, write or something, you know. I put myself in your shoes and then also kind of in my mom's because I'm really close with my mom. And how did your mom deal with you, first of all, just being in war? And then, of course, once you got injured? How did they deal with that? Because I don't think you talked about that much. It didn't seem like, at least when you got injured, you didn't. Well, she she never spoke much about it to me. And I, I learned more about how it affected mom after years after she passed. Because my sisters and other family members would say, well, you know, your mama was just really torn up that you were in Vietnam. And she was just really, really torn up that you'd been injured and, you know. And, I mean, I knew Mom was concerned, but I didn't know she was tore up. You understand? Yeah, she was a strong woman, at least for you, sounds like. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So when you were you were um, in country, how, how many times did you just go to Vietnam once? Yes, sir. Okay. How long were you there? From March of 67 to March of 68. Okay. So you got it a full year then. Well, I had some hospital time but yes sir yeah 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 you know you you mentioned how you missed home so much but then once you had the chance to go home you were not happy about it well it seemed like i needed to be back in vietnam helping my brothers which i understand now is a, a normal feeling but at the time i didn't hmm Yeah, I didn't. I, I guess I needed closure about Vietnam. Uh-huh. 
So that's what I kept looking for. How long did you struggle with that, just not being there? Well, so far, 50 years. Wow. I still um, have dreams about Vietnam almost every night. So we went back two years ago. In 2016, Dixie and I got to go back to Vietnam, and it helped my dreams and my nightmares tremendously because up till that point, I would, I'd only been dreaming about all the negative things that I had seen in Vietnam. And in going back, we were able to see how beautiful the country is, how beautiful the people are. And so now when I, in, in my dreams, when I start having these bad dreams, I'll try to remember the good things, you know, the, the beautiful of the, the beautifulness of the country. And that certainly helps because I can, I can redirect it. Now I have more, I have more memories to redirect to. Does that make any sense? It does. What else happened? Any other great experiences while you were in Vietnam a few years ago? Well, the, the amount of very young children that would run up to us on the street and touch up my arm and say, thank you, in English. And our interpreter said, that's probably the only word of English that they know, but their parent or grandparent or great-grandparent has taught them that when they see a GI, that you're, you're supposed to run up and thank them. And the amount of kids that did that were just, it was outstanding. Made me feel really good. Did, did you have on, I guess you were wearing the medal then. No, no, sir. No, oh. sir. No, I was just in regular civilian clothing, but I was, you know, blonde haired and <laughs> round eyed. I'm yeah, a GI. Stood out. Did you do any, any events there and speak at anything? Um, spoke to five of my former enemy. We spent one full day together, uh, and our, our, our State Departments got together and gathered those men up and brought them in, and that was that was a very unique day. The, the first hour that we were together in the morning, I mean, we were former enemies, and <laughs> I could tell when they would say something, and then the interpreter would interpret it. I... I don't speak Vietnamese, but I do understand just enough to know that the interpreter was sweetening it up considerably <laughs> on some of the things that they said. So they would say something, and I could see the, the I won't say hatred, but I could see the, the dislike in their eyes when they would say it. And then the interpreter would say something kind of along the line of what they said, but sweeten it up greatly. Well, after after about our first hour together, after all of us had the opportunity to, to talk, I told them, I said, I wanted them to understand that I didn't hate you as Vietnamese. You know, I didn't hate you as, as soldiers. I was just simply a soldier doing my job as a soldier. You know, I didn't hate you. And when I said that, all of a sudden their eyes changed. And the rest of the day just kept getting better and better and better once we realized that you know we didn't hate each other we were just soldiers doing our job mm -hmm. and and it worked out wonderfully when we came together that morning as former enemy and when we left that evening we left as brothers wow that's that is very unique yes sir it was awesome were any of them there that night of the battle where you got the medal of honor none of them were at that actual battle no they were in the area, but they were they were not at that actual battle. 
Well, can we talk a little bit about that? I know it's 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 documented. You've given thousands and thousands of interviews on this, so I'll I'll have links in the show notes of where people can read your citation and and learn a lot more about you. But yes, sir. You know, I'm just thinking that night. So, from what I understand and remember, it was it was at night, first of all, correct? Yes, sir. And all that, of a sudden, you're just surrounded. Well, they they had been surrounding us all day, but that night is when they decided they were going to overrun us and take our artillery pieces away from us. So, at two o'clock in the morning is when they actually did the the attacks on us. Were you asleep at that time, and or were you woken up by the... No, sir, I, I had not been asleep. I don't think very few of us had actually been asleep yet, because of what, cause it was, you know, we were in, <laughs> there was combat going on all around us, so we weren't really sleeping, sleeping. You, you know, you might close your eyes for a second, and then, you know, when you hear, da 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 boom, well, you, you know, you wake up. What kind of weapon were you carrying? M16. I guess that's what everybody had, huh? Yes, sir. <laughs> Do, will you just walk us through it just a little bit? What happened? And and um, I know you you were you, you had a lot of you got shot quite a bit. I guess you could maybe explain the beehive round as well because I'm not familiar with that. A beehive round is in a 105 howitzer. There are 1,800 inch and an eighth to inch and a quarter long darts. They're diameter of a pencil lead and they have four little fins on them which they look like little arrows the the official name is a flechette Um, the reason why the gis called it beehive round was because when you fire it you can't see nothing all you can hear is standing next to a beehive have you ever heard the beat? You stood next to a beehive and heard the mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's all you can hear. So we started calling it beehive. We need a beehive round. So we'd load a beehive round and fire it direct fire. It worked. You know, eighteen hundred those little darts going out does the job. Well, it got you pretty good, didn't it? Well, yes, sir. It saved my life. Will you kind of walk us through a little bit and, and how you – because I know you all of a sudden you realized, okay, we're surrounded and it's go time. I mean, what, what all was going through your head at that time? You know, how did you just – I'm imagining it's just like, hey, I've got a job to do. This is what I've trained for. Let's do it. Well, we were in the process – we had been firing our howitzer. We had four guns out in the middle of the jungle, and the, our infantry was stationed – around us, not close, but around us. And that's what we were doing. We were firing HE to to support our infantry. Well, when the enemy decided they were going to take us out, well, they started hitting us directly. I mean, you, I, could, I could see the enemy, and I was firing the 105 howitzer direct fire at the enemy. And that's when they fired the rocket at me and hit the the little shield on a 105 howitzer, that's, it hit eight inches from my head. The round hit eight inches from my head, and that's what blew me, I don't know, six, eight foot away into my foxhole, and that's what I was laying half in and half out of my foxhole when the enemy started coming across the river, and, you know, they, they, were, they were there. Well, the gun, our 105 howitzer directly behind us, when they seen that, they thought, well, we better fire the 105 their, their 105 howitzer beehive round, so they did. They fired the direct fire, and we weren't all dead. So 
that's how I got hit with the beehive round from my mid thigh up to and including my fourth lumbar vertebra in my back. I was laying half in and half out of my foxhole. If I hadn't had my flak jacket on, I probably wouldn't be here. But I did have my flak jacket on, and that's when they fired the beehive. That's what woke me up. Well, there I am laying in the bottom of the foxhole. Now, the reason why I was unconscious was because that round just hit eight inches from my head and blew up. So I'm laying there in my foxhole, and I couldn't really hear anything but this loud, you know, roaring in my head. But I could see all the pretty lights. And... As I'm lying there enjoying the pretty lights, uh, all of a sudden I start realizing that, wow, those aren't just pretty lights. Those are tracers because our tracers were red and their tracers were white, blue, or green. It depended on which communist nation was supporting it. And that night we had red, white, blue, and green tracers, so that meant everybody was there. <laughs> and as I lie there in the bottom of my foxhole, and the, I could start hearing again. Like in, I could start hearing individual rat tat 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 boom boom boom, and I thought, well, you know, it seemed like just seconds ago in my mind that I was standing next to the howitzer. I remember that I had just fired the howitzer. I pulled the lanyard. You know, well, where am I at now? Well, I kind of raise up and I'm in my foxhole. Wow. Well, I can see my howitzer right there, and it was burning pretty furiously. The tires were burning. I could see the enemy all around us, and I thought, wow. So that's when I went to work <laughs> trying to keep them away from us. How was there not a lot of friendly fire that night? Yeah, that's it yeah. was the 105 Howitzer behind me because the enemy was all around us. They fired, they did their job. But that's what <laughs> – if, if they had not fired that beehive round and cleared the enemy – I'm sure they would have the enemy because they were they would run up on one of our guys and shoot you again, stab mm -hmm. you at the bayonet, and, you know, to make sure that we were dead. So if they if my guys hadn't cleared the area with a beehive round, I'm sure they would have done me while I was laying there on the ground. So what was the was there a full moon that night or uh, it sounds like you could see somewhat decently. I won't say there was a full moon, but it it wasn't. It, it wasn't totally dark because we had other infantry, other actually other artillery units that were f too far away to f to fire HE, but they could fire illumination for us. Oh, so because you can fire illumination farther than you can HE, and so we had flares, you know, in the background. So that night you had about twelve hundred enemies surrounding yes, you. Is a, that right? a reinforced heavy weapons battalion of NVA. Good grief. How many Americans was it? Well, there were 42 artillerymen, and then we had elements of the 5th to 60th Infantry that were there around us also. That were there, that we were there protecting them, or they were there protecting us, however you want to put that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you ended up having to swim across the river and just kind of back and forth, right? You were rescuing, getting your teammates. Yes, sir. Well, that's when I seen the three men, men across the river after I'd got all blown up. And that's when I'd seen the three guys across the river. And that's when Mom said, son, you know, you don't leave your brothers. So I went and got them. You used the the mattress, the blow-up mattress? As yeah, the a... little air mattress. That's what, that's what what That was our official bedding was the rubber mattress, <laughs> which if you've ever tried to sleep on a, I mean, really sleep on an air mattress, 
you know, you always roll off anyway. So normally we didn't use it, but we had to carry it with us because that was our official bed. <laughs> Just added weight. <laughs> yes, sir. What kind of interaction with, with, and I don't remember the men's names, I think one of them. Was Jim Deister one of the ones that you got? Yes, sir. Okay. And that's a cool story I'd like to say, talk about in a second. But was there any other dialogue between you and, and the men as you were bringing them across the river? Uh, talk to Gwendell Holloway. Uh, Gwendell, and Gwendell's from Stockton, California. And Gwendell and I spoke. Jim Deister, we thought he was dead. Billy Ray Crawford from Alvin, Texas. Uh, Billy Ray was, he was, he could talk okay. He had his, I think it was his left leg that was blown off just below his knee. But Gwendell had bandaged him up and we we were all talking as much as practical. I mean, when you're in that severe combat, you you don't have time to really talk a whole lot. But we were we were saying things you can't repeat now. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if there needed to be any like um, motivating each other or trying to keep someone conscious, anything like that. Well, we were constantly worried about checking about Jim and Billy Ray on his leg and Wendell. You know, just talking about that and all the people that were around us you know the enemy that was around us mm-hmm. so that's why i knew that we had to hurry and get across the river so i brought i think i took jim deister across first and then came because he was dead we thought he was dead but i wasn't going to leave him because we'd seen what they do toward toward the dead bodies of her brothers so i wasn't going to leave him so i brought him across first and went back and then billy ray and Wendell could both hang on to the air mattress so I brought them back across, and everything was okay. And and Jim Deister, I mean, yeah, you you said he was for sure dead, and didn't his body he or he get kind of put in a, a pile of where I, the dead I, were? I, yes, he was shot right through the head, just below the ear, and he he was well. They shot him in the chest also, and we thought he was dead. Well, after we got him back on our side of the bank. That morning, well, I remember picking him up and carrying him over and putting him on a, the pile of the other soldiers, of our soldiers that had lost their life. And then when the chopper started coming in, I picked Jim up and carried him over and put him on the chopper. <laughs> wow. What happened? How did you find out? Uh, well, I, I didn't I didn't know right then. Actually, I passed out, and my guys put me on that same chopper, and they flew me out too. But... The the story that I found out several years later from Jim Deister was that the medic on board that helicopter seen a bubble come up out of the chest wound that Jim had and thought, well, he'll because everybody was supposed to have been dead except me. And when they seen the bubble come up, he put his stethoscope and heard a heartbeat. Said he had 25 beats a minute, and so they started giving him fluids and. Jim Deister, as you know, is alive and well today. Lives in Salina, Kansas. Yep, and you you know his family and his oh, grandchildren. Oh, most certainly, most certainly. I know all of his children and all of his grandchildren. It's great. Yeah, that's an awesome story. What else about that? About your time? I guess that night in particular. What do you like to share about that time? Well, no matter what you're faced with, you don't lose till you quit trying. And that's I just didn't quit trying, no matter how bad I hurt. 
and I, I didn't think in my heart that I was going to live to see daylight, but I wasn't going to quit trying. You know, I just kept going, kept doing, kept, you know, doing what I could while I could. And the man above wasn't done with me yet, and I'm still here today. You, know, you felt your mom's spirit. Do you, do you feel like there were other other loved ones there with you, giving you strength to to do almost the impossible, what you did? Well, my, my dad, my brothers that also served in the military, my grandpas, you know, it's just amazing where your mind goes when you're that scared, frightened, wounded, and, you know, all, all the people that had touched my life was there with me that night in my spirit, and that's one of the things that kept me going. Yeah. When you look back on your time in the Army, is there another uh, event or time that stands out even more than the night that you got the Medal of Honor? Or for the battle, for that battle? Well, the day that I received it. I, I earned it on November the 18th, 1967, and I received it on November the 19th, 1968, one year and one day later. And, you know, I'd had all kind of military training in the military, but I'd never had any training at all on how to go to the White House and receive the Medal of Honor for the president. And I'm, I can remember standing up there on this little stage with the president. And well, later my mom told me, she said, Sammy Lee, your legs were shaking so bad. I thought you was going to fall down. And I said, mama, I thought I was going to fall down too. You know, because I was just, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do. You know, and I was just, I was just really, 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 I was actually more frightened that day than I was the night that I earned it because most of what I did the night that earned it was my job. I, I'd been trained very well on how to, you know, shoot howitzers and you know, all that kind of stuff. I'd never received any training on how to go to the White House and receive the Medal of Honor. You understand? Uh-huh. <laughs> it was well, amazing. I guess you had dinners as well, and was there like etiquette situations you just didn't know what to do as well, and what, what, what order to do things in? Was it that kind of situation too? They did not do that before I received the medal. I was just, I was green standing up there in front of the president. <laughs> was it on live TV? Say again? Was it on live TV? You know, I don't even know if they had live TV back then. Uh, they filmed it. It's, I think mm-hmm. you can, yeah, you can still get it on the internet, the, the actual film yeah. presentation. Yeah, definitely, because Forrest Gump, that, that's, that's you right there. Exactly. With, with... Yes, sir. That's, that's <laughs> the footage they used in Forrest Gump. I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but it, it just blew me away. Well, first of all, I did have our friend Mike Davis from Antica has been a guest on the show. And he, to, he told, I think he was episode four, I believe. He was in the top first four anyway. And he told me what happened to him when he came off of Vietnam and they brought them through the Northwest and ended up going through Berkeley and, and, for, and, and, the, and the protest. And their bus actually got stopped and the people were actually rocking the bus. And he felt... Yeah, less safe there than he did in country in Vietnam, and that's a fact. With you, it sounds like I mean you had this same situation. Except yours, I think yours was even more. It was worse because you were out. Were you walking through the airport, and then you had to face these people? Yes, sir. They. Uh, it was twenty between twenty and thirty of the protesters that stopped me on the way to the airport. This is after. Well, I, I flew back to Travis Air Force Base. Yeah, I, I was in the airport when that happened, and I just got my ticket and was walking to the concourse for my plane flying from San Francisco back to Indianapolis 
was going to leave from, and that's when the, all the protesters <laughs> ganged up on me and <laughs> wanted us to walk, wanted me to walk the gauntlet. Mm-hmm. So, looking back, how in the world did you control yourself? Well, I knew that I wasn't supposed to react. That's that's what I we'd been told. You know, just don't react to them. You know, don't let them push you to the point that you blow up and and do something that you'll regret. So that's what I was just trying real hard to do. What was right? Did you look any of them in the eye? I looked every one of them in the eye, and I've had. Over the last 50 years, I've had a great number of men and women come up and tell me that, well, I was a protester during the Vietnam War, and I'm sorry because I protested you. I just didn't know the truth. And, and that's made, me, made my heart feel a little bit better. Maybe they never forgot that look in your eye either. Well, I hope years. not. Because <laughs> I was I mean, actually. I mean, they actually had dog crap. Oh, and worse. Golly. And and worse. And, and that you you actually experienced that more, didn't you, when you went to speak at certain maybe certain colleges, I guess. Well, yeah, well, later? as as the Medal of Honor recipient, I was the one always out front of the parade, you know. And so, as the as the one out front. I was the one that got the dog trap thrown on me. I was the one that got all the insults. I was the, you know, I was the receiver of whatever the crowd wanted to give. And during that time, you know, in the late 60s, 70s, it, it, concerning Vietnam, it was usually not nice. So you learn yeah. to put up with it and just continue on. I knew in my heart that what I had done was right. I, I went to Vietnam to help people be free, and freedom is worth fighting for. Yeah, and you know, when you believe in a cause, that makes it easier to stand up to the adversity. Yes, sir. Did, did you have security with you at these things? Say again? Did you have to have any type of security with you when you would speak at the universities during that period? Uh, usually they did have security, yes. Okay. So, I mean, if they knew that it was going to be very, very unruly, I had a lot of security, and there's usually one or two people. What would you do when they would start yelling? Did you ever stop and let them say their piece, or would you just try to talk over them? Or how would you handle it? Normally, I continued doing my job. I mean, if they became too loud and too unruly, I would, you know, be quiet and look at them. And then when they were done screaming or whatever, then I would continue on with what I had to say. But you always kept your cool. Well, I won't say always, but none of it ever made the media. <laughs> <laughs> it was back before everybody had a phone in their pocket, I guess. I mean, I mean, a, a camera exactly. in their pocket. <laughs> exactly. Mr. Davis, where would you be? You know, you were an athletic guy. You played sports in, in high school. Yes, sir. Or at least football. Did you? I think you played multiple sports, didn't you? Well, I was on the swim team there in Manteca. Yeah, yeah, okay. Played, played a little bit of football and then decided that I needed to get a job so I could support the fact that girls smell better than boys so you have to have money in your pocket to be able to pursue that <laughs> certainly so if you hadn't have joined the army you know what do you think you would have ended up doing i would have probably been a hell's angel really well i i, I was i joined the hell's angels just south of manteca and 
but that's when we moved that summer. Of course, now I'd been working up in the up in the mountains, so I didn't get to spend. You know, I would only get to go party with them. You know, just for a few hours, once or twice a month. Well, do you ride to this day? I didn't. I do not now. No, my legs will not allow that. Oh. The the doctor has suggested I do not ride motorcycle. I still love <laughs> would love to, but no, I don't. Now the, the Hell's Angels back then were not. They were not the evil thing that people think they were back then. I mean, this was the early 60s. Okay. And they, these were just a bunch of, I mean, yeah, we had some wild guys, but on the most part, everybody was just good people that liked to party. <laughs> what, I mean, was it just, just get together on, on the weekends and ride, or what, what was it really? What was the. Yes, sir, ride. Okay. Ride to different events. It was just a good time. Everybody getting together. Man, just think of all the events you do now if you could show up in, when you, in a Harley. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, sir. Well, you've talked, too, about you know the reason why you joined the Army. Will you share that with us? Well, I joined the Army because of my dad and my grandpa's. You know, I just wanted to do for them what they had done for the country. I saw an interview with you, and you said how it's easier... You know, to talk to the kids. You love talking to the kindergartners or the or the young kids versus yes, sir, the I do. ones or the college ones. And well, I, I enjoy talking to all the people, all the students. Uh, my favorite is fourth, fifth, and sixth graders because they will ask what's really on their mind, what's really in their heart. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing some of the questions that they ask. I mean, I, I remember thinking, well, how do these young children even know to ask those kind of questions? You know, it's, it just blows you away. But I always open up my heart and let them see what's there. What are some of the things that they ask? <laughs> well, one of the things that I, that I always re- will remember is, well, Sergeant Davis, where did you go to the bathroom in the jungle? <laughs> <laughs> and then the little girl would ask, well, what did you clean yourself up with afterwards? <laughs> and because they really wanted to know, I mean, they weren't being smart. They really wanted to know, you know, it's easy to open up your heart and, let, and tell them. Yeah, you gave an example, too, of contrast that with a college student who, who was asking you maybe you the go. same question, but he had a di- different intent. It's like, how did it feel to kill somebody? That's right. Well, how many people did you kill in Vietnam? But when a fifth grader asks that question, it's it has different context, you know. Well, how many people did you kill, you know? And I tell them, you know, it's okay. That well, I tell the when the university student asks that question, I tell them too. But it's just easier to talk and, and answer the the fifth grader. Yeah, yeah. The university student doesn't really care what you say because they already well, they really want to know. The the college yep. student sometimes thinks they already know the answer, you know, so they're, yep. they're just being smart about it. Well, one thing you said about that that I liked was the Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt not kill. That means thou shalt not murder. I was doing my job. I never killed That's anybody right. who wasn't trying to kill me. That is a fact. Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I never killed anyone that wasn't trying to kill me. I just was a little better at the job than they were. Hey, yeah, Amen. You're, you know, such an ambassador for the country and for the medal and for the army and you know just all things good and and you travel. I don't know. I don't know. Do you, how many do you travel over a hundred days a year? Oh, we're on the road over two hundred days a year. Wow. 
And is Dixie with you? Oh, yes, sir, always. All that time. She keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> what type of wife does a Medal of Honor recipient need? What type of wife does a Medal of Honor yes, recipient need? You want to answer that, Dick? Patience. There, she said a patient one. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like someone who doesn't mind entertaining when you get tired of, when you just need to take a break for a minute, too. <laughs> I this is Dixie. I have laryngitis, so I'll try to talk the best I can. Sure. I think you said it exactly right. It's my job to take care of Sam, and when he gets tired or loses his train of thought, it's my job. <clears throat> I do speak with him a lot of times, and um, we've been married so long now that we play off of each other really, really well. But. Yes, you have to be very patient, and you really have to like people. Otherwise, it would be a terrible job to have. The travel days are tough, but being there is always great. And we're 72 years old, and people say, well, I retired once. I'm an interior designer, and I retired to travel with Sam full-time. And people say, why don't you retire? and rest for a while but you know if you think that if you're making a difference in someone's life for just that one day for just that one person then how do you ever stop well that's why you're a patriot too well, i'll do so much good i hope so because i really believe in what we do and i think sam has such a great story to tell not just to kids, but we talk a lot of to corporations and um, probably more adults than we do kids, right? <laughs> but every everybody needs encouragement. You know, who hasn't gone through something terrible in their life? It may not be military, but everybody has some sort of trauma. Mm -hmm. So it's our job to encourage don't lose a good time. Okay. Nice talking to you. Here's Sam. Thank you very much. Sorry Mr. about the bad voice. That's okay. I loved it. <laughs> no matter what you're faced with, you don't lose till you quit trying. <laughs> Man, you sound just like my dad. That's cool. great. Yeah, that was, that was a treat to have her join us. Excellent. Good little surprise. Uh, what else, Mr. Davis, would you like to share with the Patriots of the Corps audience? Well, I think I'm good. What about something off off topic? Like, what's other than your book? What's your favorite book? My favorite book is is Dixie's book, Endless Love and Second Chances. Ah, uh, okay. Which is have you read that? No, I haven't. But oh I'll my put goodness! A link to it, Endless Love and Second Chances. Dixie's book is about us and how we came together, and it it tells all the real stories about all of our travels and adventures and. <laughs> and it's a, it's a great book. Well, good. I'll, I'll I'll look that up and I'll share that with the listeners too. Oh, excellent. What about the um, maybe the oddest group you've spoken to or the oddest place that you've been as a Medal of Honor recipient? Oddest group of well, I remember a long time ago I spoke to the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago, and the unique thing was that they wouldn't let me say what I wanted to say. I had to say, they, they wrote the speech for me. And they had gotten, I, I was 
trying to get booking through a speaking agency, and the speaking agency is the one that booked me through to the Rainbow Coalition, and that's when I quit doing speaking engagements for speaking firms. I, I just do them all just by word of mouth. So you, you basically were committed to it. You just well, I, yeah, it, I, because I had signed the contract with the speaking agency, I had to do it. So, and on the most part, most of them are pretty nice people. Was that? Are you talking about? Was that Jesse Jackson's organization? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I'm not a fan of him. And, and I, then, I um, couldn't say what I wanted. I, I had to say what they they wrote the speech for me. So. And I didn't agree with everything that they said, but it's what I had to do. So, but it's over and done with. Yeah, well, I don't blame you for basically saying I'm not doing that again. <laughs> yes, sir. Do it on your own terms. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, there is a remarkable story. I believe this is in the book about the metal. How you lost the metal? It was actually stolen out of the trunk of your car. Yes, sir. And you ended up getting it back. Yes, sir. It was going three day, three nights, four days. And the whole, the whole the whole story the the whole story is in Dixie's book, and it even has the stories of the some of the cops that were involved in retrieving the medal. Is it their stories are also in the book? Good. Well, the part of the story that I know that I like to share is how basically one of the one of the thieves that kind of came in contact with the medal remembered. Holding that medal as a young child when you had spoken at his school. Yep, he, sounds like in it. When when he was in the sixth grade, I spoke at his class, and that's why he couldn't let the other guys have the medal. That's why he took it away from him and threw it in the river, <laughs> and then told the cops where he had thrown it. And sure enough, it was right where they where he said he'd thrown it. So they found it. That's there again. That story is all in in Dixie's book. Well, that's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I really one thing I was thinking of too, if you wanted to just elaborate on this, is did you ever work as a civilian? Oh, most certainly. Military. Did Did you ever experience people who were really stressing out or worried about some things that you considered so so minimal, and just think to yourself, man, you don't even know what what real stress is like. Well, I for a while I worked at Hudsonville, Illinois Power Generating Station. And when you're bringing a unit up or taking a unit down, sometimes there are stressful things that happen. And I just always tried to share with everybody that, hey, all you got to do is do your job. You know, do do what you know your job is and everything will work out. And sure enough, every time, everything always worked out. So you just don't lose till you quit trying. My dad always says, if it was easy, anybody could do it. So that's why you remind me of my dad. Cool. You, you know, you keep saying that. Well, this has been a complete pleasure. Uh, thank you for really just making time for me. Well, I, thank I you, sir. Busy. Well, I hope it and, works. Uh, Keep me posted on it.